Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Nicole Ramsey, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Keisha Corianaldi, the author of Panama in Black, Afro-Caribbean Worldmaking in the 20th Century, published by Duke Press. Dr. Corianaldi is an interdisciplinary historian and assistant professor of history at Emerson College, where her research and teaching interests focus on the history of modern empire, migration, gender, feminism, as well as African diasporic activism in the Americas. Dr. Corianaldi, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Nicole. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us. I'm so thrilled and excited to be discussing your book today, which is a great intervention in Central American history and even world history that centers Blackness and movement and an incredible addition to the study of Black Central America and the Central American Caribbean. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So I wanted to begin this interview with some sort of foundational questions to kind of tell us about your background, how you came to write this book, your personal journey, and how you became interested in thinking about Blackness and world-making in Panama and its diaspora in the United States. Yes, so my fascination with understanding kind of Black Panamanian life, um, I think, goes back to when I was a child, but didn't quite know that that was what I wanted to be writing about. Um, But it really touched on having had the opportunity to spend time with uh, my great-grandmother who actually had some memories of some of the policies and events that I talk about in the book. And then juxtaposing that with my own experience of sort of as a child and with my parents, uh, with my mom and my sisters, starting anew in a new place and thinking about what it meant to make those kinds of choices. And so at the personal level, I sort of had that um, fascination with connecting what I'd heard um, as a child with my own experiences, um, being in a new place, and then also realizing that I didn't really have many books that I could turn to. I I'm a lover of books and, you know, would read ferociously. <laughs> like I just would read all the time. And that became sort of my uh, comfort, especially in my teenage years. And one of the things that stuck out to me in high school and certainly then in college was not really encountering a book that talked about experiences in any way akin to those that I'd had in Panama or in the United States. And so that's certainly where the kernel of the thought of the book (laughs) first emerged. Um, But it of course took several years later and graduate school and beyond before I could 
cement this idea of Afro-Caribbean world making. I think that term itself, I would say emerged, you know, even after I had written a dissertation, um, I was still trying to figure out a way to make sure that I centered the creative spirit and just survival that all these histories that I was tracing together really highlighted. And so in thinking about, well, what term, what, what kind of framework can help those who are unfamiliar with this history understand it, I thought, well, imagine that you are in a place where you're not necessarily being welcomed with open arms, but you still create an amazing community, one that leaves behind key people, um, key ideas that resonate for generations to come. How would you explain that? And so that's where the idea of Afro-Caribbean world making and the idea of that diasporic world making came into being. Perfect. I really love um, your inclusion of the stories that you were told as a child and how that kind of worked to fill the gaps and a lot of the literature that you found. Um, and I think that's really inspirational for, you know, students that may be listening to this as well. Um, and how to kind of bridge these histories with our academic and scholarship. Um, so I really like how that all came together. Um, and thinking about that within the context of this book, which kind of brings me to thinking about methods. Um, you mentioned that you like to center these kind of creative experiences. So in thinking about belonging and citizenship and how Black Panamanians took part in you know, instances of world making and practices of diaspora, I was really intrigued by Panamanians kind of advocacy of literacy and participation in international presses and writing themselves into these histories. Can you speak a little bit about your experiences um, and particularly maybe your experiences with the archives and figuring out what material you wanted to use for this book um, as you were beginning your research and just in general, um, can you speak a little bit about that experience? Yeah, thank you for that question, right? The, rest, the research, the methods, it's always a tricky one because there is on one hand, you know, the story that you know you want to tell and then the realities of what you can find. <laughs> and so it, it definitely forces you to um, think about, well, how can you make the most of your sources? And so for me, I feel really lucky to have been able to access the Panama Tribune newspaper and both its digital and physical forms. And so that was a combination of time in, in Panama, time in the U.S., at various cities and libraries, and really just sort of combing through it. And that was a first for me, and that's why I kind of opened up the book with it, because I, I wanted to think about the power of the written word especially when you are also pushing against narratives that are saying you should only be speaking or writing in a particular language. You know, what was the power of having a newspaper where people said, you know, we are going to make this paper 
uh, in English. We're going to have a bilingual section later on, but we want to emphasize that um, having access to multiple languages and to just literacy at large is really important. And so that was an amazing find that I think allowed me to balance it out with what I would find in government archives, uh, and in particular, the archives connected to uh, US-Panama relations of the National Archives and uh, Panamanian archives connected to presidential administrations, uh, to various ministries, et cetera. Uh, and I say that because those, those archives were at times tough to read because they often have a very detached approach. It's about providing you with numbers and at times uh, terms that are pretty explicit and hurtful, but that are presented as just a regular inventory, right? That's being kept. And so as I was thinking about how to both write about them, but not have them dominate the narrative, I often had to ask myself, well, where are, where is the work of the creators of these Black creators throughout? And, and so I was fortunate enough to, as I said, have a Tribune, but then also have other um, pieces that were uh, brought together by people who had collected things over the years and were willing to share some of that information. Um, in addition to just being able to also speak to scholars in Panama who were part of a generation from the 70s and 80s who were writing about it and, and discussing it, but sort of reflected on the fact that there seemed to be a gap uh, in terms of ongoing discussions about what happened. So they were always concerned that people just assumed that everything was fine and moved on and there was not a lot of reflection on what had taken place. And so that for me, kind of knowing that I had some newspaper basis, that I also had uh, some documents of people that were involved and that I fortunately could also speak to members of that earlier generation that tried to write some of this work and that were in a moment of reflection themselves about what kind of history they hoped would be out there in the world, really created this nice opportunity for me to reflect on what I could put together in terms of multiple little instances of archival moments that I wouldn't have imagined. So, you know, sort of like yearbook, for example, becoming a, a sort of space that I was happy to have ventured into, but was. Uh, reflected to think about that through conversations. Uh, so I really feel like I benefited from some of what was left behind in the recorded record by the people themselves, but also by people who had been writing and thinking about it in that earlier generation that had some feedback about what it meant to think about and conserve these histories. Yes. And I think that was one of the things that really stuck out in this book as well. Um, thinking about the ways that people have kind of recollected these memories and put them into print. And then also, I think about, you know, the multiple 
movements that are occurring across the Caribbean and ultimately to the United States, particularly in New York City, and what it even means to kind of collect these things. As you mentioned in your response, um, you also made use of, you know, things that people have collected over the years. So can you speak a little bit about that experience as well? Was there any supplemental supplemental material um, that you didn't find in the archives, particularly maybe like family members or community members that really came in handy when you were maybe at an impasse on finding things or not finding things in the archive? Definitely. Um, one of the sort of biggest breakthroughs for me was being able to actually speak to the nieces of uh, Sarah Nista Samuel, the founder of Las Servidoras, which is sort of featured in that sort of last full chapter of the book. And just getting an opportunity to sit down and speak with them. Like I only reference select portions of her interviews, but I'm talking about, you know, being invited into their homes for a meal and getting to talk about it and reflect on their memories uh, of their aunt, but also of the New York at the time that was really incredibly illuminating. And so I, you know, combed through a lot of, of, of images and as well as just conversations that didn't make it into the book, but the spirit of those discussions were nourished throughout. You know, I also had the opportunity to uh, speak on, on a number of occasions uh, with Ines Seely, who uh, passed earlier on this year, but she was someone who, from a very early moment, and this was uh, back in when we first began speaking, and I want to say like several, you know, at least 10 years ago or something of that nature, was one of the, the first people to automatically sort of make that yes recognition moment when I spoke about how difficult it was to try to find people to admit that some of the histories that I was talking about had happened. And in particular, those histories of denationalization and xenophobia. And it was so wonderful, again, to just be able to sit and speak with someone who had lived through it, but was also very conscious of how difficult it was to just get people to talk to you about it and to write it down. And so those uh, by, again, also someone with whom I sat down, saw photographs, read jotted down notes. And so that happened a lot throughout the years that I was putting the book together, uh, just having opportunities to talk to people. I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Sydney Young's son and also kind of like all of these really rich histories um, that for me made the whole project worthwhile. Um, facilitated these these gaps that I would find in the archives where you would not hear about, you know, the motivations, the desires, the dreams that many of the people that I had an opportunity to talk to were considering. And even within my own family, it was really interesting to see their reactions as I would as I would find things <laughs> in in the archives and their their discomfort, right? A feeling that they had been lied to about some of these historical occurrences. And so I always feel like I could have just written a book on the reactions 
um, um, family members and the like. So whenever we'd find things, but the, the conversations that would ensue later on when they would say, you know, actually that helps me to better understand X, Y, and Z. Like, you know, oh, I can see why maybe that wasn't emphasized. So that those conversations, the the willingness and openness in which sort of people sat with me, talk with me, um, and really encouraged the the idea of the project was essential to its fruition. Yes, I can imagine that's really hard both hard and good, you know, to be in these spaces where people feel comfortable to kind of share their inner thoughts, um, you know, their lived experience as they were experiencing it. And then also in terms of writing a book, not yeah. having the space to include everything. Yeah. Um, so frustrating. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like a good problem to have, I guess. <laughs> it is. It is a good problem to have. And you know, as we're always told that all the things that you collect together, they can be kind of manifested at later points as well, right? So the idea of being able to have those conversations and how you can reflect uh, on it later on is also a reality. So for example, I found myself thinking about a lot about, you know, how to communicate to people who are trying to write um, these kinds of histories and studies for people who are maybe for the first time hearing about it uh, and, and realizing that some of those reactions that I was just mentioning, you know, in, in terms of speaking with family and friends and, and just elders is something that I will continue to likely draw upon. I'm not quite sure in, in what, what exact, you know, form or shape, but it does stay with you. And so I am mindful of, of that and, and how that can be something that people who are embarking on, on research and wondering, you know, not everything gets to fit in that book or in the dissertation, um, in that article, that, that there are other ways that you can think about sharing that information as well. Yes. Um, I really love the way that you think through gender in this book and the way that you analyze it. Oftentimes when we think of the history of Afro-Caribbeans who came to Central America, thinking about Panama and Costa Rica um, for the canal and the railroads, it is often through kind of like this lens of male, men and movement and the travel of men. And oftentimes women are relegated um, to the background or seen a static, you know, not moving. Fortunately, there have been lots of great scholarship that has worked to kind of unearth and bring these histories to the forefront that are oftentimes, as you know, we've heard in your responses, not so hidden, but kind of carried through, you know, these like oral traditions. So I had the pleasure this semester to assign your piece about Lisa Smart Chubb, which, you know, the first oh, deputy mayor, yes, of yes. Cologne City in Panama for a class that I'm teaching on Black feminism in Latin America and the Caribbean. So I'm really excited um, about that to talk about that in the coming weeks. But also it provided a great context for reading your book and thinking about the role of Black women in world making, both in Panama as well as within its, the diaspora 
in the United States, and particularly through the Las Servidoras organization. Can you speak a little bit about what your process has been in navigating these particular histories and how best to include them or your experience including them within a larger kind of history of Caribbean migration and even entrepreneurship? Yes, yes. And well, thank you for assigning the article. <laughs> of course. Um, and just for that really great question, I think one of the ways that I saw, you know, the book evolve from its its original, even thinking about it and framing it as the graduate student to it being out now as a full-fledged book was my wanting to be really certain that I address gender dynamics and that I just named it, right? What I so found annoying in, in sort of books that I would read is that they, they would not name gender and sort of gender making and they would also not name race and race making right and and how those are processes and so in thinking about how i could both be quite explicit about there are going to be sections where you're going to see some men are going to feel that they're going to take over <laughs> the discussion and their thoughts and opinions are going to be you know all over the place i'm going to have to make sure that you understand that but I also want you to understand like there are all of these worlds happening simultaneously. And that if we actually even look at some of these venues that are presented as exclusively male spaces, you actually find that women have always been there. And so that was, you know, the pleasure of, you know, working a bit and looking through the women's section of the Panama Tribune. Um, and then also looking at women as entrepreneurs as it pertained to women in, from who migrated from Panama to New York were certainly already in Panama, engaged in things like beauty salons, et cetera. And so I wanted to just be sure to name it. And I wanted to also be sure to name the central role that um, women as teachers and as leaders uh, formed in the building of communities in sort of Panama, but the diaspora, right? And so there's been some amazing work that has looked at you know, 19th and early 20th century black feminism and, and black internationalism that I'm just so happy to have had an opportunity to you know, be in conversation with and, and read. And, and what I realized was that I needed to be sure that people understood where spaces like Panama fit and that we might not be talking about it, but that there were you know, these women writing these amazing pieces on the need to have this full, fledged, under, full and fledged understanding of what an education could do, of women who saw and noticed what was going on in their communities and the spaces that they apparently were allowed it in and not, the way that they took on roles like uh, interpreters and translators and fundraisers to ensure that they were part of these major conversations and that pointing to the tension that form part of men and women sometimes being in these organizations together sometimes apart and there being sometimes an explicit move to women need to lead this, this organization is also an important part of engaging in gender studies work right so what does it mean to 
know that there are these conflicts, to know that there are convergences, um, and that also to leave room to talk about the detailed nature of how that work was carried out, what you know, um, sort of the women, the men involved envisioned, um, but also what it meant for how they understood things to be for a next generation that they increasingly had such a key role in helping to shape and develop. Yes, um, I really love what you said about, you know, that women have always been there in these spaces, in these, you know, bringing these skills and expertises, um, their expertises in these areas that they are already occupying. Um, one of the things that really struck me um, was Panamanian women's kind of um, tradition of legacy work. So whether it's through education or, you know, making sure that the youth kind of have some sort of knowledge about these different kind of subjectivities that they occupy. And I thought that was just really fascinating and gives us a lot you know, to think about in terms of how we envision the role of Black women in other, you know, countries throughout the diaspora as well. That's right. And that idea of legacy work is so powerful. I mean, every single, and I mean, so many of the sort of older Panamanian women or older just Panamanians that I were able to talk to were women, right? And even they, you know, would routinely reference, um, what they themselves had learned from their mothers and grandmothers and great grandmothers, and also what they themselves hope to leave behind as, as a legacy. And this idea of, of taking their legacy work seriously uh, for me was just an important way to connect what women were doing in Panama, whether we're doing it in the U.S., other parts of the Caribbean, uh, this similar spirit of, you know, what do you want to leave behind and what do you want future generations to do? That impetus it was, for me, fascinating in trying to sort of pin down and to more carefully trace out, you know, where do you begin to start thinking in this way? Like, what factors shape your understanding that this was what was needed. And so that's something that I sort of dive uh, a bit more into when I'm talking specifically about the women that form part of Las Salidoras, but it really also informed even, you know, my reflections on Leonard Jump and other teachers of that earlier generation, writers that uh, were part of the Tribune, what they themselves explicitly said about what they wanted to leave behind. Um, so whenever possible, I tried to center their own words. And it was wonderful because I wasn't putting um, a particular take on it or, or making assumptions about their intentionality. They were quite clear about it. And that was really powerful to be able to write about. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, you know, a lot of the times when we think of migration, especially within the context of Latin American and the Caribbean, Oftentimes, Blackness and the active movement are seen as, you know, mutually exclusive or, you know, particular when we think of the case of Central America, there is a very particular image historically of what Central American migration looks like 
or migration from Central American isthmus looks like. Speaking of countries um, like El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, and Guatemala, and your book does a really great job of looking at the concept of citizenship and migration through this historical context, centering the lives of Black Panamanians that are often at the nexus of, you know, these imperial kind of realms of the Anglophone Caribbean, the United States, the Latin American state, Panama. Can you speak a little bit about this in terms of what this allows us to think about and how this also might be useful for how we envision thinking of Black migration and Black belonging as well as citizenship within contemporary conversations? Yes, and, and thank you for that question because you are right, you know, there is, uh, especially with the more recent and contemporary scholarship, of course, a, a great focus on Central American migration to the U.S. from El Salvador, Honduras, um, sort of in particular. But I, with the book, wanted to suggest a kind of longer view of migration, both understanding migration to Central America and then also understanding migration from Central America uh, to the U.S., but, but possibly elsewhere. And by deciding to focus on Black migrants, I also wanted to expand some of the conversations that I think we have as part of like, the field of African diaspora studies and Black studies as a whole, um, and that we're still wrestling with questions of citizenship and belonging, right? We're still wrestling with, you know, what does it mean to have the right to, to migrate? as a Black person in the world, to, to hold citizenship, uh, and that this has looked differently across time and space, and, and that it continues to look differently today. So when I was writing of citizenship policies in you know, 1940s Panama, and particularly denationalization, I, of course, immediately had to think about denationalization in the Dominican Republic and what it meant for us, and it means for us to consider that this practice of excluding um, Black migrants has a long historical trajectory, and that throughout this entire time, you have had people seeking to hold on to citizenship status when they can uh, secure it, but a feeling that that citizenship can so easily be taken away and there's a constant practice of having to think through how do you maintain a sense of belonging when this one thing that we assume is gonna give us some sort of protection, right? Citizenship can so freely be taken away. And so I hope that with the book, I can engender more conversations about needing to not see, let's say like people as kind of a static group that, you know, following, um, the transatlantic slave trade um, sort of major movement just kind of stopped, right? Um, whether it is major movements like the building of the canal or the railroad, um, that those are the only ways in which we can understand migration. But to think about the aftermaths, right? To think about the afterlives of migration and citizenship policies and how you're going to need to contend with how some of the very explicit anti-Black policies that were practiced and shaping the 20s throughout the 40s in the Americas are 
practices that we see deployed um, continuously still against Black migrants, but also by those who are being quantified as a perpetual outsider and foreigner. And that if we actually more seriously engage with this question of Black migration and how you've had um, Black intellectuals, Black activists at the forefront of warning us that anti-Blackness had the potential to destroy um, any kind of unity because it also really pit sometimes Black people against one another. If we have those conversations, I think we can truly have uh, a much more evolved understanding and intense understanding of what's at stake in the ongoing citizenship and migration debates today and into the future. Yes, and I really love how you kind of classified it as like thinking of the afterlives of migration. What does this mean, right? And then even connecting it to kind of the act of denationalization, um, in particular, thinking about the con your con the concept that you use of statelessness um, and placing this work within the context of African diaspora and citizenship and belonging, it really allows us to think of kind of a particular type of fragile citizenship. Um, and I love how you also term it as kind of like this ideal um, of perpetual foreignness, never belonging anywhere. And I think that, like you said, is really relevant for us thinking about migration and Black migration globally, um, you know, in these contemporary conversations. No, absolutely. I mean, we can't not see what's happening in Europe and the thousands, right, of uh, young African men, women, children that drown, right, as they're making trying to make their way to um, Europe and sort of finding heightened policies that are never explicitly labeled, right, anti-Black, but are so clearly targeting um, this desire to keep out Black people. And so for me, both when it is said out loud <laughs> and when it isn't, becomes important to consider as, as part of a long, and extensive history of these practices of dehumanization. Yes, exactly. And that kind of brings me to thinking about one of the central um, workings of your book that I think heavily about, which is diaspora. Um, and thinking of Central America, thinking of Panama, thinking of the Americas in general. So. Myself, along with many others who do work on Central American Blackness, we're really inspired um, by your work and particularly your centering of Black populations within Central America. And as you noted in your book, um, Black people in the region should not be classified as afterthoughts or fetishized others, which really spoke to some of the qualms that I have and others of how Black people show up in these narratives. And this has been very instrumental in me thinking about my own work on Belize, um, which is also, you know, an English speaking country in Central America with ties to various places, the Anglophone Caribbean, um, indigenous and mestizo populations in Central, throughout Central America. And one of the questions and most popular comments that I get um, when I discuss 
you know, that I'm interested in Black identity formations and performances of the nation is how you can situate, you know, these Black groups in Central America as perpetually diasporic, but also heavily attached to the nation, which if you think of like traditional understandings of diaspora and thinking of Blackness as somewhat transcending the nation, but in the case of Black Central America and especially Panama, you have this very interesting, contentious um, relationship to the nation state and national identity. Um, so I was really also fascinated um, of your argument that, you know, when you think of the African diaspora and the nation, it is ultimately, you know, in many cases, key components of how we envision um, what you said, Costa Rican, Panamanian, Cuban, or Dominican nationality and culture. And we can see a lot of this in, you know, contemporary conversations, um, whether it's through music, whether it's through other forms of cultural production. So my question is, how have you been able in your work and in your book um, to reconcile with these two competing and sometimes contentious models of identity and history, um, as well as within your teaching? Because I would imagine with your students and the work that you do, and how you explain this history to your students, it would require a lot of unlearning about the region and a lot of unlearning about national identity and citizenship and um, things of that sort. Yes, and you know, unpacking what people assume to be the definitions of particular terms and what um, particular places and people should look like is such hard work, right? At every level, you know, the writing, the teaching, um, but just speaking about it, right? Each time that you've been asked to explain yourself, right? And, and I too, in putting, you know, the book together, uh, was asked, right? Like, what, what is this? How can you suggest both that we need to understand diaspora, but then you're also talking about the nation and citizenship, to your point, you know, there's this idea that these two are, are not really connected when it comes to African diaspora studies, right? That it is thinking about people who are connected to this African diaspora experience as a quintessential understanding of diaspora. Um, and of course it gets complicated when you take into account that, that people move, right? That people for a variety of reasons have had to move um, and with each move have also had to think about how they're going to claim a space, how they're going to define themselves and their sort of societies and the people that come after them. And so for that reason, I articulate this importance of, of not simply suggesting that you can um, focus on the static notion of African diaspora that sort of is somehow sort of still in time, right? It's just, it's fixed in time. And instead think about how it necessarily, right, has to evolve, it's dynamic. I think that's something that um, even sort of the earliest scholars thinking through this, right, Kim Butler, sort of Hall and others, um, urge us to think about that dynamic nature of it. But it is precisely when you're then adding the component of, well, what about members of the African diaspora then, that also decide that nationalism is, or, or, or a nation, 
is an important component to how they're going to define themselves and defend their rights. This is where I say it's, it's so crucial to know the specifics of the place that you are talking about. Um, black formation and citizenship formation is, is going to look very different in places, you know, like Panama and Belize and, you know, the United States, precisely because they're localized histories that we need to understand and explain. But I also argue in the book that the reason that, you know, Black Panamians are able to think about, and especially those, you know, with this link to the wider Caribbean are able to think about the world and themselves as world makers is that they note, they note similarities in the experiences, even when sort of the nation state is there as um, a separator or it has been used to cement and fight for particular rights. And so they themselves ask us to be a lot more creative and a lot more willing to understand these dynamics of diaspora than we would normally be and to also understand the dynamics of sort of migration and Blackness when you take into account the diversity as well of Black experiences. They're not being a fixed understanding of Blackness, of sort of more of Blackness, certainly um, key legislative protections that citizenship affords that Black people in these various spaces understand um, and that those withholding it, et cetera, also understand. But uh, a shared conversation about what kind of futures are possible in, and in my case, I focus, you know, in the Americas is something that exploration of spaces like, you know, um, Panama, like Belize, like Costa Rica, allow us to see in a really clear way. Yes, exactly. And I think you mentioning you kind of like place and formation is really key to thinking about the isthmus, um, you know, not only as kind of like this space that connects North and South America, but also in terms of thinking of the Black diaspora, a meeting place where Black Caribbeans from all corners of the Caribbean can kind of take part in this formation and refashioning um, and this kind of local type of internationalism, which I think is kind of provides, you know, the proof and kind of an ex a prime example of why this particular history and region is so important to thinking about these kind of processes of formation. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And I think that's something that can also lend to folks studying world history in other places as well. I hope so. I hope so. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes you're like, it's, it's specific. And I always say, you know, you've got to get back to the, to, to knowing and feeling comfortable about the particular people and places that you're writing about. But there's also a conversation that you can have that can be really fruitful and that particular terms or concepts can help us to bridge and build. And so while being specific about what world making, for example, might have to look like for Afro-Caribbean Panamanians, I am hopeful for how in your work and others' works as they're thinking about the African diaspora, 
in the Americas and beyond the Americas, we can also conceptualize revamped ways and sort of even added ways of thinking through world making. Yes, exactly. And within that same vein, um, thinking about Panamanian migration to the United States and particularly to New York, Brooklyn, which you showcased in the last chapter of the book, um, I was very interested in your exploration of Panamanians in New York that occupy a very unique and particular space in thinking of the lived experience um, of being Caribbean, um, and then in terms of like Afro-Latinx identities and kind of providing the bridge for engaging with both English-speaking Caribbean identities as well as Spanish-speaking Caribbean identities seen through the lens of political organization um, via Las Servadores and Panamanian women in Brooklyn. So can you speak a little bit to place in terms of incorporating Brooklyn into your work? Um, about world making and then also kind of like this bridge and this link that Black Panamanians served um, within Caribbean New York. Yes. And, you know, for me, it was so important to be able to speak to that idea of bridge building throughout as many parts of the book as possible and ending with kind of bridge building away from the isthmus, right? In Brooklyn of all places was for me um, a perfect example of the power of sort of black creativity and innovation when it comes to creating these spaces uh, of belonging. And in particular of how black Panamanians held such a special key in their ability, which they had been articulating since the Isthmus, but it is further enhanced in spaces like Brooklyn about needing to speak across multiple languages, the needing to understand multiple experiences, uh, needing to know that there is this rich diversity to Black life that can enhance how we advocate and fight together. And so for me, thinking through what it meant for, you know, Panamanians from the 40s and onwards, but, but there were certainly Panamanians in New York even before the 40s, but I focused on the 40s and onwards, was an important opportunity to even have readers ask themselves, you know, how do we categorize, do we have a categorization for who we assume to be Caribbean, Afro-Latinx, African-American, right, in New York at this time? And in what ways is learning about this from the perspective of Las Servidoras, of some of the young people connected to it, of the professors and other activists that are organizing these conferences of Panamanians um, in spaces like New York and others, how is that maybe altering and um, encouraging us to expand what we envision to be this sort of Black Brooklyn? And so for me, that idea, that central role of especially women, right, who use their home as a space of organizing, but then were quite public in recognizing Panamanian achievement and recognizing Black achievement 
all while knowing of this earlier history, right, that the book narrates of how for so long there had been this disregard for their achievements and their worth in Panama was for me a kind of really important way to, to cap off, okay, let's together have really deep conversations about who we include in these spaces of activist formation and how Black Panamanians in places like Brooklyn have really been at the vanguard of saying we need to understand that what connects us is sort of a shared history of, of course, being part of this broader African diaspora, but also understanding the links between Central America, the Caribbean, British Empire, U.S. Empire, linguistic plurality, um, and women getting things done, right? Like that all of those things can bring people together. And so for me, it was really a thrill to be able to find a concrete example of all of that in action. Yes, I really enjoyed this chapter thinking about the diaspora. I learned a little bit more about the Panamanian diaspora in Brooklyn historically. And then just also thinking of it in terms of a larger work of Caribbean, you know, the work that has been done on Caribbean women migrants to New York, um, a lot that when I was beginning to um, look for resources when I first started my PhD journey, there was a lot of literature on that. So it's really fascinating to think about how gender also functions in this way. And then I think like the example you used with Shirley Chisholm and kind of like that connection was really just kind of brought everything together for me. Um, and it was really fascinating to kind of see that history play out. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, ha I think I like giggled when I saw her picture and I was going through <laughs> some records. It was kind of like, I was like, ooh. And the picture didn't, didn't make it into the book itself. So it was, I didn't kind of get a very high quality one of it. But I just remembered being like, sometimes you, you have, uh, whether it is an image or a moment or an event that you feel can help you help others understand this big argument that you were trying to make and that was certainly one where people were like wait what Shirley Shizum was here I'm like yes do you see now do you see what I was trying to do so that was that was one of those moments uh, in writing the book yes yes and we're so thankful for that um so I think kind of pivoting back to kind of like your trajectory, were there any works, authors, or books that kind of inspired your research journey and then this book as well? Yeah, so certainly the work of uh, George Priestley, um, who's a political scientist and um, wrote initially about politics in, in Panama in the 70s, but a lot of his work later on co-authored with Alberto Barro was really influential in helping me try to trace out some of that um, kind of later history of organizing in spaces like New York. You know, Chrissy was someone that I had an opportunity to talk to and who also um, provided connections to Las Servidoras, et cetera. So a really kind of generous uh, scholar. And so that 
that proved really crucial. Um, I also, you know, found myself really um, encouraged and, and enthralled by some of the work that Asian American studies scholars were doing, especially when I was trying to, to think through uh, how to discuss and understand questions of perpetual otherness and perpetual outsider, which I felt that um, have been particularly richly discussed in that particular realm, right? And so the work of people like me and I were, were really kind of useful in getting a sense of who has been deeply affected by um, these questions of inclusion and belonging as well as, oh, I don't know why I'm blanking on her name, uh, a history of four continents, why? <laughs> um, but I'm sort of, um, but just really getting a sense of, of, of a little bit more of, of that um, work was, was helpful as well. Uh, in addition to just the, the rich work on African diaspora histories and critical African diaspora studies that um, I sort of connect to the work of people uh, like Keith McCarby, uh, as well as um, already mentioned, but can't you know, mention it enough, Kim Butler, right? Uh, Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, like really thinking through some of these conceptualizations of um, how, who do we usually include in these narratives of inclusion and belonging? Oh, Lisa Lowe. Now I finally remember the name, right? Like after I said, uh, after I moved <laughs> on, but in terms of Asian American, um, and just sort of like that sort of transnational and sort of trans hemispheric history, um, that being uh, an important one. And then like the creative work and the work of scholars, I think in the English, in the field of English, that also was really useful. So Melva Lowe, the Gooden and her work, um, originally her plays from Panama to Barbados, from Barbados to Panama, um, which was like so wonderful to have an opportunity to, to read that and to also see how it sort of has evolved in terms of attention that it has rightly received particularly by scholars, I would say, outside of Panama, uh, even more so writing about it to some of her own work later on as well and trying to trace more fully the African diaspora in Panama and, and trying to contend with, you know, how, especially when you have these narratives of racelessness or racial democracy or racial mixture, whatever you know, want to call it, uh, you're, you often get a pushback um, if you are choosing to write histories that, that center black people. Um, that is changing and, and it has changed in significant ways, but uh, there is certainly something that still remains when the history that you're providing is one that might be critical to uh, nation, state, or nationalist understandings of identity. So that's kind of like a a peppering of some of the scholars and fields that, as I was writing and, and as I was thinking, really sort of shaped various components of the project. 
Yes. Awesome. It makes sense. Those are some great resources to kind of have, you know, as you work through this process. Thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are more and there, you know, hopefully most of them cited in the book. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even if like, you know, I didn't don't mention some because I know it always happens like when you're on the spot and have to mention exactly. something, you blank uh, immediately. But the, I hope that the bibliography is useful. Um, all the references are useful. I mean, that is the one thing that um, I always tell people that is the joy would also work of trying to be a really thorough scholar, like you want to leave records behind for others to find, right? You want to both thank the people who have inspired you through citing, you know, by citing their work and using their work, but you also hope to leave um, behind some records that others may want to investigate in their own way, right? So that idea of, of trying to be as generous as possible and, and knowing that that's how we continue to write um, is has sort of been on my mind, uh, especially just when I encountered, I would encounter things and I would be like, where is this from? And he was saying this. And so I'm so mindful now of like, have I left some sort of uh, puzzle piece or just a piece where someone else can decide, hey, I want to jump on this and do a bit more. Uh, that for me is the ideal. Yes, that's actually a good question too, when thinking about for researchers when we do our work, especially these histories that we are kind of unearthing and that we kind of, you know, write about in collaboration with the community, what are some of the things that we can leave behind? You know, thinking more about that legacy work, especially if our research is attached to the community, you know, mm -hmm. that we come from and that we're studying, like what do we leave behind and how, can we use the research and the things that we find to be of service to others? So I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. And even sort of as the book was sort of coming to a close in terms of the, the final moments, I was already finding myself, you know, giving presentations to groups like the Museo Francillano or the West Indian Museum in Panama and just people that were like, come and talk to us more about this mm -hmm. um, we need to sort of have a a discussion on this front and just really kind of managing it and trying to manage um how much you know you any sort of one person is able to do but recognizing i think that um i myself maybe even underestimated how much the work would resonate with people that i was doing it and sort of now that it's out, um, and that's just a, a great feeling, right? To have that there's, there's a, there was a thirst, right? In terms of just the correspondences and, and other exchanges that I've had uh, with people uh, since sort of news of the book has been, you know, trickling out little by little and now it's, it's fully out. It's been really amazing to hear people say, you know, like this is, this is a story I wish I had been able to share with my grandmother because she would have understood this. Like, I thank you. I feel seen. I feel like our history is seen. Um, you know, when you are writing on your own and uh, in that library or in your room or wherever it may be, um, you don't necessarily think about that aspect of the work and 
that has been an incredibly pleasant and just energizing experience. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and then, you know, a final question, what are some things that you are hoping that readers will take away from your book? Yeah, so I hope, one, that the book encourages, you know, uh, just a curiosity about places like Panama, like what? I, I didn't realize that there was already these multi-layered rich histories of a place that maybe I just associated with the Panama Canal. <laughs> um, <laughs> that there's like all this other stuff too. So, so I hope that they're willing and open to sort of hearing about kind of after canal histories of Panama. Uh, I also hope that the book encourages people to see that activism has looked uh, differently across time and that how you choose to create community and for and fight for change um, can be as diverse as you can imagine as long as you remain committed to centering um, your humanity and the humanity of those around you. I hope that they read the book and um, perhaps grow as close to some of the people in the book as I uh, became just like, you just start to feel like you know people after writing a book. You're like, that's right, why would you do this? You know, how? But I hope that they begin to appreciate some of the tough choices and, and also just um, the, the potentials of the activism the work presented. I hope that I don't present a, a picture of, you know, these perfect people who, you know, defy the odds and did these amazing things. Like that's not quite the um, history, the story that I wanted to, to tell. I, I want to be clear that struggle is real and recognizing that struggle alongside recognizing activism is how we keep going and it's how we can hopefully motivate each other in the future. Yes. yes. Awesome. And to those listening to the inner to the podcast today, be sure to check out Panama in Black that is now out in the world. And <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Corinaldi, for sharing your work with us on the podcast. I it was such a pleasure to to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and thank you for your work and just wonderful questions. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>